Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. You've got a prime minister that takes a knee one day and then takes Indigenous kids to court the next. If he thinks he can threaten Canadians with another election in 18 months, the Conservative Party will be ready. Thank you, Purple Army. What I didn't realize at the time is that I was breaking a glass ceiling that was going to fall on my head. Qu'est-ce que c'était cette histoire? Pourquoi avoir interrompu mon barbecue? You are sending us back to work with a clear mandate to get Canada through this pandemic and to the brighter days ahead. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics. Today, COP26 is officially over, but what did we even achieve? And then, on one hand, members of the Conservative Caucus birthed a Civil Liberties Caucus, and people are mad. On the other, a Liberal Caucus didn't meet as quickly as they should, and people are also mad. I'm told caucuses are important, but what are they actually for, and how should they work for us? Joining me this week, an all-female cast, Riley Yesno, writer and researcher at the Yellowhead Institute. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Caroline Elliott, freelance writer and PhD candidate at Simon Fraser University is also with us. Hi, Caroline. Hi, pleased to be here. And Emily Nicola, columnist at Le Devoir and the Montreal Gazette, a welcome back to you too. Thank you. Let's get into it. It took 72 hours of negotiations in Glasgow at COP26 for world leaders to reach an agreement about how to tackle the climate emergency. This was the longest it's ever taken. Conference President Alok Sharma cried when it was done and hailed the agreement as a major milestone in humanity's efforts to avoid climate catastrophe. But in reality, the Glasgow Climate Pact was anything but. Sure, there was some good. 25 years since the conference has started, this was the first agreement that even addressed fossil fuels. We had historic pledges to end deforestation and methane emissions, but most of what the agreement said and what world leaders promised was to delay action. Countries have been told to increase their ambitions by the time of the next COP in 2022. Goals to reduce emissions were left to future technologies, and there was no talk about how to restructure the global economy to prepare for worsening climate impacts in the immediate term. The story of COP26 seems to be a story of failed political action, and that's what I want to get into, starting, of course, with Justin Trudeau. He bragged about Canada both at COP and after COP. Here's what he said after a caucus meeting just last week. When I was at COP last week in Glasgow, we saw uh, how much there is a need for countries willing to push even harder, even faster on the fight against climate change. And we're one of the strongest voices out there calling uh, for the world to move forward with a price on pollution. And the world is noticing. 
right before he started speaking in English there, he said in French that the liberals have the most ambitious vision amongst any of our political parties. The problem is that at Glasgow, Canada's climate policies were deemed insufficient, with one report saying that Canada doesn't, quote, walk the talk. So, Caroline, do the Liberals have the most ambitious vision amongst our political parties? And was Justin Trudeau right to brag about the power we had at COP26? Well, I think the way you put it was interesting. To sum it up, you said it was a success in some ways, it was a failure in other ways. And I think that that's maybe the best way to put it. When it comes to Canada, I think the tendency is often to give ourselves a little bit of an outsized role on the world stage relative to the influence we really have. And I think that was demonstrated by Trudeau in, in the comments you referenced. Does the Liberal Party have the most ambitious climate plan? I think the Greens and, and the NDP would probably disagree with that. Uh, do they have the most effective plan? Uh, I think maybe the Conservatives might disagree with that. I think probably everybody except the Liberals would disagree with that, frankly. So, I mean, it's a, it's a way of him promoting his interest in his party, and I get that. Uh, in terms of Canada's role on the world stage, though, I do think that outsized influence uh, that, that we like to see for ourselves, uh, Justin Trudeau calling for, for example, a global uh, cap on carbon, that's a reasonable thing to ask and it's a good thing to advocate for. Did that actually get to where we wanted things to be? Probably not. So I guess what I would say is, is when you're hearing these kinds of things from Trudeau or any of the world leaders is, is just to take them with a giant grain of salt because their audience is, is not just the delegates there. Their audience is, of course, the people back at home. Emily, as you've been following the COP conversations these past couple of weeks, do you think it's true that Canada is one of the strongest voices out in the world right now when it comes to climate change policy? I think Joe Biden is. That's not to say that he's perfect or anything like that. It's just to say that on some of his ambition, he's actually been on the left of Canada. And obviously the U.S. are bigger than Canada. Other than that, I think there are some really serious questions that needs to be asked in terms of Canada's reputation in the world in terms of climate change when it comes to oil production and also just how much we consume per capita and also transportation in such a big country as this. So there's really a lot of files in which we're really not leaders. And obviously our governments have been asked about these uh, while at COP26. Just to give an example that maybe has gone under the, the radar in the rest of the country, but uh, the Quebec premier, François Legault, was at COP26. And one of the big projects that he's been pushing for is the building of an underground or underwater tunnel between Quebec City and Navy. There's absolutely no expert that backs this project. It would just increase the number of cars and therefore CO2 emission. And so he's been trying to go to COP26 and brand that project as a green project, which doesn't make any sense at all. And obviously being criticized at home for it. But it's just, a, I guess, an example of, or maybe a metaphor <laughs> of what Canada's been doing on a whole lot of other fronts. I think François Legault maybe is the one that's the most obvious, but I think there's a lot of people who've been going to COP26 basically doing that, uh, which is trying to brand as green a way of life that profoundly isn't. And I think for Canada, it's going to be pretty existential questions, I think, in the next couple of years, because there's it's really, it really comes down to mm -hmm. the way that this country was built, which is on you know, extraction of natural resources. And so you cannot have a conversation on how to do things differently in a way that would exceed COP26 expectation without doing things that rely on asking questions that are not politically 
palatable. Yeah, I found it really interesting how this COP26 started with like a whole lot of we need to get this done kind of metaphors. Mm-hmm. We're like, this is our last chance. Yeah. This is the only time, you know, we are convened here. We have to get something out of it. And then the end result was sort of meh. It was very like lackluster. It didn't hit as hard as, you know, the rhetoric that the conference started with. And and Riley, you've been to COP yourself. You've been to COP24 specifically as a member of the Canadian delegation with the Prime Minister's Youth Council. So what was your impression of this COP? Is it just, was it the same as what you've experienced or, or was there better differences? From what I could see, and I was um, somebody following from afar as closely as I could. So, so many of the folks who I was able to go with the first time went back to COP again. And uh, between both their opinions and mine, from what I can see, it's this constant general disappointment, <laughs> both when we went to COP24 and again now in COP26, because the thing is with like an issue as existential as climate change is, met is, is a failure when the apocalypse is the end result of that failure. Um, not to be so overly a- absolutist, but the thing that I found really notable during my time at COP was that where I thought most hope for change came from and the most promise came from was not necessarily from those negotiation rooms with all of the like international actors. It was with activists. It was with civil society on the ground. Um, And so those are the voices that I'm really looking at as their takes coming out of COP26. Um, And I think that there's a really important conversation to have about the way that activists were treated at this COP. Like we saw the way um, they talked about how the Glasgow police were like making it very difficult for them to organize on the ground there about the ways that they were shut out of a whole bunch of decision-making rooms and from positions where they were able to speak. um, And how I think that that is just emblematic of some larger problems of why we fail to meet our climate targets and why we fail to take this as seriously as we need to. So I understand you joined the Indigenous People's Caucus. What sort of conversations were playing out there and did they jive with what the country leaders were talking about? Not really. (laughs) My brief summary in terms of jiving. Uh, When I joined the Indigenous People's Caucus, the main thing on our agenda was about getting an Indigenous people's platform into the Paris Agreement or into, uh, you know, the actual document. Um, That did actually happen at um, COP24. Notably, I also point out that it was Indigenous communities and municipalities were lumped together as having, I guess, you know, the same influence in these conversations as if Indigenous, you know, people aren't full-on nations. And and not to dismiss, you know, the role that municipalities can and should have in fighting the climate crisis. But just to say that I think Indigenous voices and Indigenous knowledge is still devalued and undervalued. And when it comes to how impactful it could be in fighting the climate crisis, the fact that we're looking to these new technologies, looking for all of this green tech, as opposed to leaning back on the like millennia long ways of knowing of existing already undergoing activism, I think is a real tragedy. Yeah, and this is what's interesting about COP to me, where it's meant to be this big international conference, and oftentimes the spotlight is on political leaders because obviously they are decision makers and they can change and push the needle faster than civil societies and ordinary citizens who are extremely concerned about climate change. But I wonder, and maybe Carolyn, I'll get your insights on this, is this a really effective way to get climate action? I think it's one level of 
what's needed to get climate action. I don't think that you could ever look at it in isolation and say this is enough. As Riley said, like civil society, you need those environmental organizations. You also need representative voices from from people who are more impacted, whether it's within countries in certain industries, for example, or more impacted people around the world. So I think that it's one level. You know, I'm tempted to be the world's biggest cynic about these kinds of things. You'll often hear me naysaying the, the impact. But at the same time, I do have to think to myself, if we're not having those conversations at the global level and we're addressing what is a global challenge, then what use is all of our work in isolation? I am also a cynic when it comes to these conferences. And the reason is because it often seems more symbolism and rhetoric than actual concrete action or decision that I can follow through or or hold leaders to account to. And, and one example of this that I saw at this COP26 was the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. This is the first global coalition of governments to set an end date for all oil and gas exploration and extraction. The IPCC report, the IEA report, which we've talked about on the backbench, say that we have to rapidly move towards clean energy. Now, the province of Quebec is part of the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, but Canada is not, which flagged to me a question about the role provinces and local leadership plays in this fight. And Emily, you touched upon this, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, because there have been many provincial-federal tensions when it comes to the climate file. Just this past week, for example, in reference to the climate promises that Trudeau made, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe tweeted, and I'm quoting, Saskatchewan needs to be a nation within a nation. When the federal government implements policies that are detrimental to our province, our government will continue to stand up for Saskatchewan people. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney said he was not consulted about the climate promises Trudeau made either and called the federal promise unrealistic and devastating to the entire economy. So Emily, when you hear this kind of jurisdictional fighting, who do you think should be taking the lead? And especially when we see jurisdictional differences in approach as well. Well, I'm going to take the question in, in reverse, especially during the Harper era. It's been a good news that there is some decentralization in terms of powers in Canada, because if it was the federal government who was uh, pushing the most to do nothing, then you would be happy that there is some autonomy of the provinces to be able to do more than the strict necessary that, that, that Ottawa wants to do. In this case, it's a mixed bag. There's a lot of people, especially in Alberta and Saskatchewan, saying that basically trying to battle climate change is an attack on their fundamental values. <laughs> Uh, and then there's people who are too proud of saying that and is actually creating a weird regional fight while there's only one planet and you fighting about which region is the best or the worst is not going to, you know, you cannot separate from the earth. So that kind of rhetoric is so unadapted to the fact that we're facing global challenges. I feel like in Canada specifically, the conversation about the climate crisis is not going to come to, I don't want to say to an end, or it's not going to advance in the next couple of years without having this question of federal unity, what not being put on the table. I feel like whenever we're trying to push forward for some change, there's people who say that you cannot put for change without hurting our economy, while there's people out west as well who've been trying to push for those changes to happen so that it's not an either-or situation anymore. 
It's kind of a vicious circle that basically it's a matter of uh, provincial identity to be able to pollute. You're going to put forward policies that are going to make that true. So it's it's complex, but I do think it's going to play as a Canadian unity thing, which it should not. It should really just be about the climate crisis. But I don't see in the current political landscape that we have uh, a way in which those voices of, you know, we're better than you or we're worse than you or where we need to be more independent from you because you're trying to battle climate change. I don't think that's going to go away in the next couple of years. Caroline, I'm curious to hear your thoughts because you are in the West. Like, do you see these tensions disappearing anytime soon so that, you know, Canada can take a unified approach to the climate emergency? I don't see them going away anytime soon. And at the same time, as much as it's seen as a problem, I do think there is a role for provinces to play in advocating the people impacted by these kinds of transitions. And I know that that does sometimes take the form of a kind of resistance to some of the measures that a lot of people are uh, believe are needed in order to combat climate change. But at the same time, uh, when you see the Premier of Alberta, for example, or Saskatchewan, really pushing back on, on some of the more uh, impactful measures being uh, suggested, There is a role for that in my mind. And it's part of, obviously, the democratic process. It's part of making sure that this is done in a way that has the least possible impacts on the people who would be otherwise most impacted, of course. I don't see an end to the disunity because I think that fundamentally the interests of different parts of the of the country are 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 different. Yeah, and that sounds deeply discouraging to someone like me, but it is the reality. <laughs> it is the reality, I think. Yeah. It's 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 hard to get everyone on the same page. So, Riley, I'm wondering, how should we, or how do you, if at all, reconcile differences? And I'm asking this because one thing we learned from COP26 is that despite all the ambitious targets that countries around the world, including Canada, have pledged this year at this conference— Even if they all enacted all the policies and all the action items that they've pledged, the world will still remain on track for a temperature increase of about 2.7 degrees Celsius this century. That is devastating to the most vulnerable of communities and the entire global system. And I think about how the democratic system means that new governments will come into power, they could change the plans again, they could change the track that we're on, they could change how we're going to do things. So... How do we reconcile these differences to make sure that government after government after government continues to observe concrete, realistic, ambitious steps and strengthen them along the way? Oh, man. How do you solve the climate crisis? <laughs> how do you solve Canadian <laughs> unity? <laughs> Basically, Riley. Give yeah, us an yeah, answer, yeah. Riley. <laughs> I think, uh, I mean... So as you're talking to like a bit of a recovering anarchist, I sometimes like to call myself, <laughs> I think that the initial thing that goes to my mind is revolution, is that we have to come to a place where we're all totally okay with scrapping the way we've done things and no more of these like minuscule steps and reforms and whatever, um, and completely revolutionizing the way that we think about the economy, how things run, what priorities are. These are huge, huge lofty things um, on a more perhaps actionable and, you know, immediate <laughs> sort of train of, of, of solution forward thinking. I think empowered citizens and an empowered electorate is like really important in this. I think that these climate conversations and especially like when it gets around COP and the climate finance and the climate science and just the language and um, how foreign a lot of this conversation is to an average Canadian or an average person like living in this country, right? Like it's hard 
um, to feel informed enough and empowered enough to be able to hold your politicians accountable in the way that they need to be, I think, to spur action. And you were sort of talking about that earlier, right? Like about how one of the failures or one of the disappointments out of COP was the way that it felt like there was no actionable, clear things to point to, to be able to hold people to account. And I think that that's, that's a very universally felt thing outside of people who, you know, might, you know, be in climate activists and climate advocacy spaces 365 days a year. I do think that a lot of people out West see a role for the natural resource sector in combating climate change in a meaningful way. And it doesn't necessarily mean the oil and gas sector. I mean, the natural resource sector more broadly. Uh, if you look at mining, for example, and the different kinds of uh, materials that go into some of these renewable energy uh, sources, so uh, metallurgical coal for wind turbines, for example, or zinc, cobalt, uh, the kinds of things that go into manufacturing electric cars. Uh, molybdenum is something that British Columbia produces a lot of, and that's critical to some of these renewable technologies as well. So I do think that with the right mindset, there's actually a lot that the natural resource sector, and particularly that sector out West, can actually contribute to solutions as we do transition away from fossil fuels worldwide. And I do think as well that the electricity production sector has also a role to play. So if you look at uh, British Columbia, where they're building the Site C Dam here, it's actually a project I support. I know a lot of environmentalists don't, but I see that as critical to providing some of the power that's going to be needed to not only fire the needs of industry, but also the electric vehicles and those kinds of things as well. Uh, transmission infrastructure is going to be necessary to connect BC's really clean hydro-based uh, electrical grid to Alberta's large um, fossil fuel-based electrical grid. So there's a lot of building and natural resources uh, that can actually go into solving this problem. And I do think that it's almost like a mindset shift that's needed to actually look at this in a way that the West or some of these uh, provinces that are currently involved in the fossil fuel industry can say, like, look, let's actually get on board with providing some of those solutions. I mean, I hear you, but at the same time, I think we need to realize that CO2 emission is only one of the issues and what's happening with the environment right now. I don't know how many species are disappearing every day. <laughs> We're just destroying our planet in other ways as well that are not necessarily causing or are not the result of climate change at this point, but they're happening. They're happening because our industry is expanding. The human footprint of industry is everywhere and it's disrupting ecosystem. Not all, all that leads to necessarily climate change, but it leads to destruction and it leads to having a huge impact on uh, the populations that are the most marginalized on this planet and especially Indigenous peoples. And when we are in the Amazon or whatever, mining <laughs> or in the Congo mining, having electrical machines mining is not my vision of climate justice, environmental justice, if it's going to be about destroying those ecosystems. And I think we're not necessarily having this conversation in relation to climate change as we should. Basically, we're, we're, we're kind of like talking about CO2 emission as if they were disconnected from just a broader ecosystem destruction that's been going on. If they're going to mean building more suburbs that are now going to run on, on electric cars, that are just going to also destroy more agricultural land. You know, that's not a solution. When we're thinking about just general solutions to the climate crisis, like I will say till like I die that there is no solution to the climate crisis without Indigenous people like leading the helm. And whether this is Emily talking about, you know, biodiversity, like Indigenous people make up 5% of the global population, protect 80% of the world's biodiversity. We can't talk about 
how to use natural resources in maybe, a, you know, a greener way or find, you know, those minerals, because we have to mine through and plow through indigenous lands in order to get those minerals. Um, and that's just like always been the way Canada has done things with a complete disregard for indigenous sovereignty and indigenous ways of being in jurisdiction and knowing. This is all just to say that the fact that that perspective and that, as I mentioned earlier, indigenous perspectives were so left overwhelmingly left out of COP just shows again, like why is one of the reasons of many of why COP was, in my opinion, a failure. If you want to solve any problem, the first thing to do is to put in charge the people who have the best record at being good at it. And there's just so many data that shows that it's it's been indigenous people always uh, and forever. And but who's going to really add COP26? What is in the, the, the you know the structure of COP26 that's going to be like okay? But the best pact that we could write is about you know um, abolishing ourselves and <laughs> leave it, leading leading other people lead the way. It's not going to happen, right? Because it's about control. One of the things. I think it's really important to think about because people are talking about, you know, this revolutionary action and, and a lot of it comes back to halting growth or stopping growth or preventing growth at the end of the day. But I I get so nervous when I hear that because I think that growth, economic growth is a necessary part of maintaining the standard of living that people have come to expect. And I think when we go down those routes, I don't think people will ever accept a lower standard of living as a trade-off for climate change, even if that were one means of attaining action on climate change, I just don't think it would be publicly acceptable. And I worry that it alienates the broader sections of the public from what solutions could really be out there. And instead of looking at growth as a bad thing, looking at it as a different kind of growth, one where we do develop really good technologies in carbon capture and storage, for example, and, and export that worldwide, or looking at building up our transmission grid and displacing those coal-fired plants in Alberta, or even in the United States in some cases. I do think what happens sometimes is people get really focused on the zero fossil fuels, and it loses sight of the idea that we just want a reduction in emissions. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Riley? My point of order is that I'm sure folks have seen that it is officially 100 years since uh, insulin was first discovered at the University of Toronto. It's an anniversary. And I think that that's something really awesome, really worth celebrating, of course. But I also want to turn attention to the fact that Canadians annually can spend up to still $7,000 a year to pay for pump, to pay for their insulin, um, when Banting, you know, patented it for $1 because of how necessary it was going to be for people. And so I'm bringing in a conversation about pharmacare, <laughs> about uh, medicine, and yeah, 
that's my point of order. You know, it's not a point of order, but way to give us a reality check about our medical system. <laughs> like, here's this great thing we created and we have to pay like so much to get it. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Caroline? I want to talk about the fact that we're all talking about uh, means of, of transitioning some of these developing countries off of fossil fuels. But in our own backyard, in our own country, so many Indigenous communities in remote communities are powering their communities off of diesel and, and other fossil fuels. And I can't believe that we don't have a more focused program to finance, to help build, to support these Indigenous communities in connecting to the grid or to building renewable power that they can use in their communities and therefore fight climate change in our own backyard. I don't see a whole lot of that and I think there's so much more we could do. So that's my point of order. Interesting, not a point of order, but I want to hear more and learn more. And as someone with family members in the power industry space, they'll be very glad this exists as a point of order on the back bench. <laughs> Madam Speaker, can I make a point of order? What is your point of order, Emily? I am so depressed by the way in which the country has been having a conversation about Air Canada and like CEOs, <laughs> CEOs who are paid like ridiculous amounts who are just like not wanting to speak the language of the city in which their headquarter is. And then so many people have been like trying to defend the human rights of the CEOs in the last couple <laughs> of weeks, just in spite, because they're just like so anti-French that they're going to be like pro-CEOs. And I just want to say that the way this conversation has been unfolding has been so, so sad uh, because it's it's like really revealing when you're like having your sympathy for the wealthy guy who doesn't give a fuck. And that's going to be, you know, the person in which for 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 which you empathize because he speaks the same language as you do. Not a point of order, but I love that. I just love it. <laughs> So how parties bicker between themselves is one of the more niche things political journalists focus on from time to time. But for average Canadians, it may not seem like a big deal that impacts their day-to-day -day lives. However, a couple of things have happened in the past two weeks that I think warrant a conversation about it. Especially since by the time the backbench comes back, the House of Commons will have started meeting. Canada's two major parties have been dealing with some internal drama that I'd love to understand more. First, on the Conservative end, a couple of Fridays ago, three-term Conservative MP Marilyn Gladue announced the intention to start a, quote, Civil Liberties Caucus. The number of people in the caucus is still unclear. Those details were meant to be released last week, but we haven't heard anything yet. Gladue's office declined to disclose that information to Tiffany, our producer. Different political reporters are estimating about 15 to 30 Conservative MPs will be part of this new crew. Gladu said the group chose civil liberties as a name because they believe Canadians who don't want to be vaccinated are not getting fair treatment. In her own Ontario writing of Sarnia Lambton, Gladu said 18 nurses have recently lost their jobs early for refusing to get vaccinated. She says losing their jobs was a violation of their rights. So before we even get into the content of what I just said, Caroline, what's your understanding of a caucus and how is this new Civil Liberties Caucus different from that, if at all? More generally, 
uh, political caucus is where elected members of the various parties get together and discuss the issues of the day. And, and, and there's always, it's a really important part, I think, of the representative process in a democracy. So if you're Marilyn Gladue, for example, the more general conservative caucus would be a place to bring up these kinds of issues. And then you might hear pushback from other caucus members who have different perspectives and they get to all air that stuff, you know, outside of the public spotlight. And I think it's a really important part of the process to just air those grievances in a less public setting and keep the party on track, keep the leader accountable. Now, the Conservative Civil Liberties Caucus is a little different. It sounds to me, or at least based on the news reports I've read, there's something between 12 and 30 or between 15 and 30 members of the Conservative Caucus who together form this group who uh, have a concern about the treatment, I guess they would put it, of the unvaccinated. And that's an attempt, I think, to put some pressure on their leader and on their party and, and to put the issue into the spotlight from a media perspective as well of an issue they find important. There's a lot of ways you can look at this. You can look at it in terms of, is this the right thing to do? Is this the right issue? Are they actually correct about the treatment of the unvaccinated? How accurate have they been in representing the vaccine? There's that whole way of looking at it. And there's also the uh, more basic strategic way of looking at it uh, for the Conservatives. And, and I think the reality is strategically, it's not a great thing for them. It places this whole vaccination issue, which kind of uh, hurt O'Toole in the election and coming out of the election, drags the issue on even longer. Uh, it's not ideal for him, considering the vast majority of Canadians support vaccination. Almost as many support the vaccine mandates. And uh, that puts this caucus at odds with, I think, a, a huge swath of public opinion. And so from a strategic perspective, not ideal. Yeah, it's almost like a, and I use this word loosely, but it's almost like a rebellious caucus. But it's been created under the broader context of the fact that the Board of Internal Economy, which I just learned is the governing body of the House of Commons, has announced that anyone who is not vaccinated cannot enter parliamentary buildings or the chamber. Now, Conservative leader Erin O'Toole has publicly said he will respect those rules. The Conservative Party's official position is that it will follow these rules with plans to challenge as a point of privilege in the House on the grounds that MPs should be making these rules, not like this governing body of the House of Commons. Gladue says that her caucus isn't meant to be a challenge to O'Toole's stance or his leadership. So Emily, like intentions aside, is the impact of this new caucus a challenge to O'Toole's leadership? Will it make it harder for him to, you know, present a conservative stance on mandatory vaccines? I mean, the answer is yes. <laughs> If we go back to the last federal election, what happened is that uh, Erin O'Toole tried to position himself as a more moderate conservative, saying that uh, he would be government for governing for everybody and trying to basically distinguish himself from the more social conservative elements of, of his space. This hasn't worked. He hasn't been winning a lot of new seats in Ontario, for example, which was one of the goals. So there are some social conservative elements who are pushing for saying that basically this that this strategy doesn't work and that Erin O'Toole should be more of a Harper, let's put it this way, conservative than, than he was. It's interesting because I fundamentally believe that the reason why it didn't work is because of things like what we're saying right now. Erin O'Toole is not able to convince Canadians that whatever he says actually goes for the Conservative Party. Obviously, he's the leader of it, but he's being contested ideologically. And even if it's not an open war, what average Canadians see is that basically what Erin O'Toole yeah, says does not represent what the Conservative uh, caucus 
necessarily wants to do and doesn't represent a lot of conservative members as well. Yeah, Carolyn and Emily, you've really set up the situation really well because I think at the heart of the issue is like, what is an MP to do when their constituents or when they feel their constituents want them to fight for the right to not be vaccinated or to not do something that the party is saying? And Riley, I wonder what you think about this. Like, how should MPs balance representing their constituents or their constituents' views versus following the party line. Well, first of all, I wanted to point out that like I like choked when I first found out that Marilyn Gladue was going to call this the Civil Liberties Caucus, the same woman who voted against banning conversion therapy. So I'm like, work, I guess. Oh, and then also first to Aaron O'Toole, like I think that for him, like when I'm looking at what he, how he should be responding to this and like what I think, you know, is his greatest challenge is like, you know, this is one piece of it and I think the first step, but where I think the rubber is really going to hit the road for him is when, you know, on the 22nd, they have to go back to the House of Commons and unvaccinated members try to get in. That's when there's like actual grounds to kick these people out of caucus. And whether or not he does that, I think will be, you know, a really important, like in in the scope of this conversation, like a test of like, does he have the strength of leadership? What is he going to do about party discipline? So like, that's something I'm looking out for. But, you know, I would generally say, I think it's really important that, you know, MPs feel empowered and safe to be able to break party discipline when necessary. Like I'm thinking about the case of Jody Wilson-Raybould from to use something like kind of recent in, in people's public consciousness. But at the same time, right, I think that that goes on a context by context basis. And in this context, I think that there's also a conversation that is like largely being left out of this, there of a lot of analysis about like, how a lot of anti-vax and civil liberties talk around here is like very close on this pipeline of alt-right radicalization. And how much space do we give that? And how much space do we give that in decision-making spaces in the media is a conversation that is being shafted in terms of like, what does it say about Aaron O'Toole, which I think is like a huge disservice and ties back to like the conversations around the PPC that we were having during election time. Yeah, I think Riley really hit the nail on that issue. I studied democratic theory and representation as part of my doctoral program. And it's so interesting how some of those very issues are just right here for us to look at. When you look at representation and national interests versus local constituency interests and, and what MPs are expected to do, what their actual job is. Are they a trustee that constituents trust to go to Ottawa and make decisions for them? Or are they a delegate? Should they be following the exact will of the people who elected them? There's all these really interesting factors at play. And one of those is party discipline. And, and so often people talk about how that's used as a tool to empower the elites and the leaders. And it's true. Uh, it's why there's so few meaningful free votes where people can actually vote their conscience. But then again, you have issues like this, where you've got such a fine line between spreading a wrong message or a message that's not in the national interest. The distinction between sort of moral disagreement and allowing even wrong opinions to be addressed versus outright misinformation, which is a different thing, intentional misinformation. If they want to talk about are the rights of the unvaccinated being adequately protected? It's like, sure, let's have that conversation. But then when the issue becomes, is COVID really a threat? Is it really as bad as polio or is it not such a threat? Um, Is the vaccine safe or or do we want to sow some doubt about that? That's where the questions, it, it becomes like, I mean, it's pretty cut and dry. So do people have the right to be wrong? Yeah, I think they do. But do they have the right to spread information that, that they know is, is not reliable? No, I think that can be harmful, right? What we're talking about is like the difference between constituents' opinions and uh, the constituents' interests, because it's not necessarily in the interests of people who are not vaccinated 
to not be vaccinated, right? But it's their opinion that they should not. So, and I guess that's the tricky ethical issue there is that if your job is to defend your constituents' interests, it might be to openly disagree with them in this case. And I think that's the line that needs to be drawn. And that's why it's it's such a tricky issue is that there's a lot of people who represent communities that were also more unvaccinated than others in different phases of the COVID crisis and that they've been using their role as MPs to be like pushing leadership to do more education on vaccination uh, because it was in their constituent interest, although they were presenting, you know, a writing in which there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy. So I think to me, that'd be how I, I framed the ethical issue there. There is similar sort of issues happening in the Liberal caucus, which has been pretty annoyed because leadership waited seven weeks to convene with um, with them. Uh, someone literally complained about the Liberal leadership taking their, quote, sweet-ass time. Now, this has started a broader conversation about the power of the leader versus the power of party members. And bear with me because I'm going to get a little technical. Since 2014, a party caucus's first official task after getting elected is to decide whether to adopt measures that empower them as a group. These measures are mandated by the Reform Act, which gives members the ability to review the leadership of the party leader and remove them through a majority vote, expel or reinstate uh, members of parliaments from caucus and, and other things. Now, this is a really contentious act because some believe caucus shouldn't have this much power over the leader. But the prime minister's office has a lot of control over things, as we've learned over the last several years. And after everything this PMO has seen and done, some MPs want more time to speak or consult or be involved in decision making. But last week, the Liberal caucus voted unanimously against these measures. The Conservatives remain the only party to have voted in favor. Uh, The NDP and the Bloc also voted against the measures. So, Emily, it seems interesting to me that parliamentarians are voting against empowering themselves in, in the room where it happens, you know, in the room where these things are discussed. How do you perceive this? What does this tell you? It tells me that rules are not the only way in which any ideology is being implemented. If I take, for example, the Liberal Party um, and the Liberal Parties in general, there's a lot of loyalty, uh, discipline in the selection of who even becomes a candidate, who even, you know, climbs up the party. If you are not a super loyal person, you're going to be labeled as a loose cannon and you're not going to make your way in the room. So when you're in the room, then people vote for adoring the leader because if that's not how they thought, they would not have entered the room in the first place. People, for example, who want to be more independent tend to go to municipal politics instead, because in a lot of cities, there's no party uh, there, or they just stay out of electoral politics altogether. And so I think that's why. And I think the Conservative Party has always branded itself as a big tent party with more ideological diversity. And that's also one of the reasons why you're seeing it there and you're not seeing it in the other parties. Riley, do you think the Liberal MPs were within their right to be so angry about how long it took for caucus to convene? It seems contradictory to me, at least, for them to be so mad and then vote against having, you know, powers to hold their leadership to account. Yeah, I think that if I was like in their position, I probably would be very frustrated as well. But I really take your point about (laughs) voting against the act, which I thought was like, which, you know, I roll. And I thought that Emily gave like a really good analysis of why that happens. And I think this whole thing and their indignance about it and then 
the subsequent vote of no just like shows like how flawed some of our party internal party systems operate, like how flawed those those inner workings are. One thing to tack on to Emily's points, you know, the way that like unspoken rules can kind of inform the way that people vote. I think that going back to Jody Wilson-Raybould is a great example, right? Because for this liberal party, we know what happens when you break with party convention, when you break with party line, and only certain people like Jody Wilson-Raybould, who are prominent ministers, who have a lot of support are able to come out of that unscathed. For the majority of caucus members, that is not the case. I mean, it's it's not just the Liberal Party, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the Conservative Party has also ejected people from their caucus. Like, Certainly. I remember Derek Sloan being ejected a few years ago. Which leads me to my final question, I guess, is what does a healthy caucus actually look like? And, and why should Canadians care about how caucus functions? So I actually uncharacteristically agree with the Liberal Caucus's approach to the Reform Act. And the reason is because I think there's a lot of ways to empower caucus. And and this is, I guess, an answer to the question you just asked. Things like free votes uh, on meaningful matters, not just sort of throwaway issues. Strengthen committees in Parliament are a huge part of that. Even potentially term limits for leaders, which people don't talk a lot about here. I mean, rules uh, around convening caucus, which is the issue that we're talking about initially, rules around convening the House of Commons more frequently and for longer. Those kinds of things can really empower caucus. But when it comes to the actual Reform Act, and this is a really important distinction, I think, is that political parties are a lot more than caucus. Political parties have members, right? And members are the ones who elect their leader. Caucus are just a handful of the party members. So that's where I draw the line. I mean, I'm involved in the leadership race here in in British Columbia and the amount of work that goes in of the grassroots of riding associations all across the province here, of the individuals who really are truly involved and dedicated to these different political parties. Caucus, there's you know, maybe 30 of them in in the party I'm working with right now, that's 30 out of, you know, tens of thousands of members. So I do think overly empowering caucus actually perpetuates that elite dominance in a lot of our politics by vesting those individuals with more power relative to the party members. So I think it's a really important distinction, even though I 100% agree with every comment that was made about actually empowering caucus relative to the leader. But I think there's just different ways we can do that that respects the contributions of party members. Yeah, just adding to that, I mean, one of the natural things I think a lot of people tend to go to is that it's like, oh, we have to get rid of like all of these conventions of party discipline because they limit the things that people can say. And I actually disagree with that to some extent in that, like, I think party discipline is a very necessary and like important thing for functioning parties. But I think like there's another conversation that often happens in like Canadian political science that I fall on uh, on perhaps a more critical side of, of like, you know, the powers of the prime minister. And I think that the powers of the prime minister are too great and that, you know, reform there would actually have trickle down effects that, you know, a lot of folks have talked about and a lot of folks have explored the possibility of. And so that's one area that I think I am often paying attention to to see if the prime powers of the prime minister were different in this case, like how would that look? And I think in the case of like how caucus functions, that's like one one instance. As always, there's so much happening in Canadian politics, so we're going to do a quick rapid-fire segment in which everyone has to answer in 17 words or less. This is an arbitrary number that I have come up with. Um, Question one. Parliament resumes next week and the Liberal minority government will only have 24 sitting days to fulfill all the promises they promised to meet in their first 100 days. This includes legislation to regulate social media companies, combat online hate, reform the criminal justice system, protect 5G networks, and so much more. It's an aggressive agenda. So, Emily, what do you think they can accomplish in this very short amount of time? 
I don't think they can do much in this very short amount of time on legislative agenda. They can table bills, but that's pretty much it. What they can do, though, as they're sitting is announce government policies that are not necessarily bills. So they can move some some parts of their agenda that are not bills, but that are like executive decisions. Riley, former Senator Murray Sinclair, who headed over the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, will be facilitating talks with Ottawa about compensation for Indigenous children. What specific hurdles do you think he'll need to clear to get what Indigenous children are due? I think he is going to have to get past a lot of hurdles. This inherent colonial logic that comes up again and again, this finger pointing of who's actually to blame for things that like a lot of folks like to do when it comes to jurisdiction over Indigenous affairs. Also, there's a lot of eyes that are going to be on this. There's going to be a lot of pressure and a lot of public opinion. um, And that's something that uh, he's going to have to navigate. But I think if anyone can, he's a really, really excellent choice for it. And finally, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will travel to Washington, D.C. for the first time in five years for the first trilateral meeting with leaders of Mexico and the United States. They're called the Three Amigos for some reason, and they're meeting at a challenging time for U.S.-Canada relations. Joe Biden has canceled permits for the Keystone Pipeline XL, which resulted in a multi-billion dollar blow to Alberta. There are still land border restrictions to discuss and trade relations to finesse in the wake of Biden's Buy America plans. Caroline, what outcomes are you looking for from this um, three amigo meeting? Seriously, why do we call it that? I don't know the answer to the second question, but uh, I can try to answer the first. You know, I think one of the biggest things that the general public will be looking at will be the land border issue, especially uh, regarding testing requirements. I think that that impacts a lot of people. That's one of the more tangible things. But that said, I'm sure there's going to be things uh, that they'll be discussing coming out of the climate conference as well. And of course, our natural resources. Thank you, all you wonderful cynics, for being here and policy nerds. <laughs> Let's adjourn. <laughs> That's the backbench. We'll talk to you again in two weeks when Parliament Hill will be in full swing. If you're following along what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you're watching closely. To learn more about the front bench, aka the new federal cabinet, you should check out our bonus content. Please consider supporting us to listen, especially if you've been liking what we're putting out. CanadaLand's fundraising continues, and we'd love to have you as a regular listener. You can email us with any questions, concerns, or rants, backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed, and you can find my work at The Narwhal. Where can people follow your work? Riley, where are you? You can follow my work on Twitter at Riley Yes No Maybe or on my website. I have an archive of my work with RileyYesNo.com. Emily, where are you? I'm in other Canada Land shows and I'm in Le Devoir and the Montreal Gazette. And I just want to say that Canada Land is fundraising for me to be hosting shortcuts uh, in French more often. In French. So please donate to Canada Land so that we can do that. And Caroline, where are you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at North Van Caroline. That's N Van Caroline. And I also write for the Hub Canada, so you can find me there. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Karen Oudshorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening. See you again soon.
Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.